following audio is from a sermon series entitled Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom Through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Exodus 25, 1 through 9. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting, for the ephod and the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. This is the word of the Lord. Um, If you're just joining us, we are right in the middle of a series called Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom. And what we've been doing is we've been going chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through the book of Exodus. And really, the book of Exodus is one of the most exciting books of the Bible. There's not... I can't think of any other book that is more, maybe the book of Acts, more action-packed, more drama, more adventure than the book of Exodus. And, and what happens in the book of Exodus, first God saves his people, the Israelites, from Egyptian slavery for 400 years. They've been oppressed, they've been beaten, they've been treated cruelly, and God frees them and gives them a promise that they're taking, he's taking them to a new land, this promised land that God promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And on the way that God is taking them to this promised land, he brings them out in the wilderness and he shows up, God shows up on Mount Sinai in chapter 19 in a way that he displays his glory, his wonder, his awe in a way that, that they've never seen before. And so it's so glorious that the people are actually scared when they see God in all his glory. It's a, it's a terrifying thing for them. And it's here on the mountain that God gives his people the Ten Commandments and and the, the laws that he gives to, for these people to, to sort of govern their lives in the way that if they are to be God's people, this is what it looks like for them to live. But here in Mount Sinai, he doesn't just give the rules, he doesn't just give the law, but he makes a covenant with his people. He makes an agreement. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And this is essentially what we saw happen in last week's passage where this covenant that God made with his people was confirmed in blood. And what this covenant accomplished, it gave people an access to God that they've never had before, right? We, we saw animals were slaughtered, um, blood splashed on the altar, the blood was sprinkled over the people, and, and in that, being covered by the blood, people are able to now draw near to God where they sit at and have a meal with God. They beheld his glory and looked upon him. And now... At the end of where we left off in in chapter 24, verse 18, we're told that Moses is actually invited to go up into the cloud of glory at the top of Mount Sinai and stay there for 40 days and 40 nights. So it's from this point forward in the story of Exodus, uh, all the way up to chapter 32, Moses is up on top of the mountain with God. And so it's in this context where our passage comes to us from today. And really, though we only read nine verses, we have a lot of ground to cover because we're going to cover chapters 25 up to chapter 30. 
And, and you're probably doing the math in your head. Typically, we, we do one chapter at a time, and one chapter is about an hour long of a sermon. And you're thinking five chapters means we're going to be here for a long time. But I promise I won't do this to you. Um, even though there's, there's a lot of great detail that these chapters go into that we could unpack and we could spend literally hours sort of unpacking the details and sort of sifting through what, what these things signify. But, but I'm not going to do that this morning. We're going to sort of breeze through that. Um, and so the plan for today is to dig into these first nine verses and then make big strides through the rest of chapter 25 into chapter 30. And, and really, the reason why we're doing this is because unless you're, you have plans to build your own tabernacle in your backyard, right, unless you've got a blueprint laid out and you're wanting to, you know, kind of make some sort of um, feature, some sort of lawn feature, then, then it's really not necessary to go through each chapter individually. Um, but there is significant, this, this is significant material here. It is, it is important. It's not something to just sort of skip over um, I realize that maybe if you were to come to this in a, in a Bible reading plan, um, this would be one that you sort of breeze through. But what I want to do today is sort of uh, go through this in a way that shows the big picture, shows what God's really trying to do today um, in giving Moses instructions for the tabernacle. Um, and what I think we'll see, what I hope to see, show you, is that what God's plans is, he, what he's doing here is no longer up on the mountain He's no longer just up in the heavens, but God is moving into the neighborhood. He's coming down off of the mountain, and he's going to be among his people. He's going to live among them. He's going to be near to them. He's going to be accessible. He's going to be available. He's going to be right in the center of the camp. So no, no longer will there be a need to go up and down the mountain, but God will be with his people. He'll be near to them. And I believe that this is something that many of us need to hear this morning, that while God is glorious and transcendent, God is not off in the distance. He's not far off beyond our reach. That God has embedded himself among his people. That he has given us access to himself. He's drawn near. That he's imminent and he is involved. And I think that down in, at the core of us, there's this desire, there's this need for us to be close to God. Not just in these mountaintop moments that we can sort of feel, you know what I'm talking about, where, where you're going through your life and, and life is really good and you feel so close to God, but in the day-to-day, -day, in the grind, in the normal life, to be what it feels like to be near to God. And so in today's passage, we're going to see how God made himself available, and we're going to go we're see what it took in order for God to make himself available to us. So if you want to open up to Exodus 25... We're gonna, like I said, we're going to camp out here most of the time. But before I give into the text, get into the text, I want to give you a heads up that we're talking about money here. We're talking about giving because what happens when you see the glory of God, which is what happened in 20, chapter 24, when the Israelites saw the glory of God, the natural response is giving. This is the natural progression. When you see something that's beautiful, of infinite worth, of infinite value, you ascribe value to that by giving what was once considered valuable. And we don't talk about money here very often at Sacred City um, unless it comes up in a passage like this. And so we don't, we, if you've been here before, you notice we don't pass a plate. 
Um, we do have a, a giving box in the back, but really the majority of giving happens online because this, for many non-believers or not yet believers, this is sort of a barrier to the gospel to them. They think, oh, the church, all they want is my money. And really, that's not what we're about at all. Um, and so to take that barrier out, we don't, we don't take a, an offering here on Sunday morning. Um, and, and in this sense, that if, if you're not a Christian yet, then this first part of the sermon really isn't for you. You, you don't, we don't want your money. In fact, we, we would rather that you take Christ, that you see Jesus as supremely beautiful and valued before you ever pull out your checkbook. And so I hope to show you this morning the great lengths that God went to to give you himself um, and, and in his son Christ. And, and for the Christians, I realize um, talking about giving can be uncomfortable. It's, it's uncomfortable for me to kind of stand up here and talk about giving as well. Um, it's a sensitive subject. It feels invasive. Um, you're thinking, Pastor, who are you to tell me what to do with my money? And, and I told, like I said, in my flesh, this is something that I don't like talking about because really, I just want you to like me. And I realize that when I start poking around uh, with specifically your money, uh, you start to not like me quite as much. But this isn't about me. This isn't about me. This is about God and what he desires from his people. So if, if you have a problem with giving, then your problem isn't with me. Your problem is with Jesus. And though we, though we don't, like I said, we don't talk about money often, giving is a crucial part of discipleship. As we grow in grace, we grow in generosity. 30% of Jesus' parables dealt with money. Right? This is why your problems with Jesus. 30% of what Jesus had to say in his parables was about money. Because Jesus knew, he was trying to communicate, that a disproportional love of money can keep us from the kingdom of God. So because of the severity of this matter and because of God's providence in leading us to a passage that speaks about giving, this is where we're going today. So let's look at, at verse one and two here. The Lord said to Moses, I need to pray. Let me pray. Father, Father, I need you this morning as we open up your word. We're hungry. We're, we're craving you. We long to hear from you. Thank you for your word and the way that you've communicated to us that we can hear from God. This morning, I pray that you'd open up our ears, soften our hearts. I pray, Father, that your spirit would work in conviction Lead us to repentance and find the grace of forgiveness in Christ Jesus this morning as we study your word. Would you help me with, with the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's, let's, let's go with verse one, two. And the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man. Here, so that's the first part. Speak to the people of Israel, that they take for me a contribution. Now, the first thing that God says to Moses when Moses comes up on the mountain in the cloud of glory, he says, take an offering. In the last chapter, like I said, God showed his glory, chapter 24. They saw God's glory. They beheld his glory. And now God is inviting his people into that glory. And as an expression of that, an expression of seeing what's infinitely valuable, God is inviting them to give something back to God. See, giving is one of the primary gestures of authentic worship. It's an expression of adoration 
and praise. The act of giving says that God is the most valuable thing to me. And when we put money forward, when we actually participate in giving, we're putting our money where our mouth is. We're saying that God is indeed more valuable to, to, than, than money or whatever I could buy with my money. In fact, there's nothing that more clearly communicates how sincerely we value God than our giving. Jesus teaches in Matthew 6. He says, where your money flows toward reveals what your heart loves. And because of this, Philip Ryken comments on this passage. He says that one of the leading indicators of our spiritual health is giving. So Christian, if you want to get a pulse on how glorious God is to you, if you want to sort of evaluate how your affections are stirred with Christ, one of the places, one of the primary places where you can go to is your church giving records. Because what you love, where your money flows to, reveals what you love. Now, for some of us, this could be alarming. Right? We think, well, you know, maybe my giving is inconsistent, or, or maybe we've never given before. And if this is the case for us, we need to do some heart work here. We need to ask the question, why? What is it that's keeping me from giving now, for some of us, it might just be a matter of, of simply not knowing how or why we give. Maybe you're new to the faith. And so one of the next steps in discipleship for you is to participate in contributing to the work of the church. So it's a matter of prayerfully, maybe even getting together with your MC leaders and say, hey, I want to take these next steps in discipleship. What does it look like for me to tithe? And, and, and a tithe is 10% of, of your income, but if that's, that's a big number, then we start with a lower number and work towards giving a full tithe. Now, others of us, maybe we know that we're supposed to give or we feel that sort of compulsion, but we have various excuses that prevent us from giving and really that keep us from the blessing of giving. Jesus Paul says that Jesus said it's better to give than to receive. Right? We might say, well, I don't trust the church. I don't know exactly what they do with their money. And as a church, we, we strive for transparency and we offer our members our financials. But, but this, this excuse implies that you are more trustworthy than those who God has appointed to lead and to guide the church. And in withholding, just think about this, in withholding tithes and offerings and withholding contributions, what you're doing is robbing God. According to what Malachi 3.8 says, when we rob God when we keep from him our tithes and offerings. So, so therefore, you're saying, well, the church might not be trustworthy. You are robbing God. Robbers aren't trustworthy. Others, it might be, well, I give, but I don't give to the church, right? We support nonprofits, child sponsorships, um, various organizations that, that are in our cities, and that's a good thing. That's not something to stop, but the church is God's primary agent for the mission of God moving forward. And so when God calls for his tithes and offerings, it is to go to God's mission towards his church. Some people might say, well, you know what? I don't make enough to give. And there might be some valid um, 
some who say that that have valid reasons for that. Maybe a single mother or, or single parent who is on government income, that, that, that money has to be designated to a specific way. You don't have your own sort of income, right? So there are, there's definitely grace with people who have, the small percentage of people who have that sort of scenario. But most of the time, people who say that, it's a matter of maintaining a certain kind of lifestyle, Randy Alcorn wrote a book called The Treasure Principle who is very focused on giving and the joy of giving. And, and he, he poses this question to the, the person who says, I, I can't afford to give. He says, if your income was cut by 10%, would you die? No. Right? If, if the answer is no, he says this. Then you, then you just admitted that you can tithe. It's just that you don't want to. Under every excuse for not giving, for inconsistent giving, is the reality that we aren't seeing Jesus as the most valuable thing in the universe. It means that we've lost sight of the glory. We've lost sight of the surpassing value and worth, and our hearts have been deterred from that for lesser glories. See, giving isn't a form of advanced worship that once you become an ultra disciple or you've been walking with the Lord for 10, 15 years that you start giving. Giving back to God is worship 101. Because what you love, your money flows toward. But the error in giving isn't just a lack of giving or inconsistency in giving, but we can also give in the wrong ways. See, God tells us, he directs us to give in a specific way, to give from the heart. This is what um, verse 2 in chapter 25 says. So speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. This means that giving isn't done out of compulsion or duty, but it's done in gladness. It's a response to what God has done. This is what the Apostle Paul is getting after in 2 Corinthians 9. He says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, I realize that, that passage has been used before in ways to stop people from giving. They say, oh, well, I, I'm not a cheerful giver, so I'm just gonna wait until the cheer comes along and then I'll start giving, right? My heart's not in it, so I'll, I'll just wait for it to catch up. And then, but, there, but here's the thing, that there, there's a discipline in cheerful giving that as we give, not only does, does our giving indicate what we love, but giving solidifies and strengthens our love for that thing. As we give, our love grows and we become more cheerful. Giving itself is a form of liturgy that shapes us and forms our love. Now, some of us err by, having, by giving consistently, by having this routine, by having this discipline, but we don't do it as our heart moves us. That our hearts are detached, that we have the routine without the heart, that our ties just become another check to cut, another line item in our expenses. And I can relate to this. This is personally where I struggle. Just know that, you, that your pastor tithes 
that, that my wife and I, we give 10% of our gross income every month to the work of the church because I believe that it's my job to lead the church in example. But I have found this really hard. Giving is, is a, a tough discipline, and, and one of the things that makes the discipline a little bit easier is the automatic online transactions that we use. We use e-giving, so you can go online, you can set up a transaction that recurs every month. But what I found that, that though that, that's convenient for us, it happens, boom, instantly, I don't have to think about it, my heart becomes detached from what I give. And so one of the things that, one of the disciplines that I've cultivated over the last couple years is I set an alarm on my phone on the 15th of the month when, when I get paid, my tithe comes out that same day. I set an alarm to remind me to pray because otherwise, if, if I don't think about the money that's going out, my heart grows cold toward the church. It just becomes another expense on the line. I look back later in the month and say, well, geez, couldn't that money gone somewhere else? So what I've done is I, I've created this discipline of where, where I've been praying. I set an alarm so I know to pray. I pray that God would, would cultivate me uh, into a generous giver that I would be lighted and cheerful in my giving to the church, that God would multiply the resources the church has just as Jesus multiplied the loaves of bread and the fish among his people, that God would give wisdom to those who are governing and leading the church through their leadership of, of finances. And I pray, I pray for that, that heart, my heart to be connected to my giving. And so that's one thing I feel like as a church, Maybe we're giving, but our heart has become detached, and we, we need to sort of reconnect our hearts to the, the generosity, to the cheerfulness of giving. Now, others, maybe you're in a different boat where you're, you give, but you give sort of the leftovers, right? When all your expenses have gone out for the month, when you've taken care of all your, all your bills, and then whatever's left over, that can go to God. In fact, it Really, what that is sort of being sort of stingy with God. We look at maybe the minimum requirements or even just the act of giving and, we'll, and say, well, God can have this much, but no more. But here's the thing. God deserves our best. The best is what God calls for here in Exodus 25, verses three through seven. Take a look at this. He says, and this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple, scarlet, yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oils for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting for the, uh, the ephod, and for the breastplate. See, these things are, are the best of the best. These things are valuable. But to give the best isn't, matter, uh, isn't not a matter of giving the biggest dollar amount or giving the most extravagantly. Giving the best means giving sacrificially. And just think about the widow's offering in, Ma in, in Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44, where Jesus is sitting in the temple and he's watching people come and drop their tithes and their offerings into the collection plate. And he sees wealthy people. He sees the, the Pharisees coming in, dropping in large amounts of money. 
And then he sees this woman, this old widow, who, who comes up and she drops in two copper coins that equal about a penny. And Jesus says, this woman has given more than anybody else. Because those who are rich gave out of their abundance. But she gave everything that she had. She gave sacrificially. She gave God her very best. See, this is what it means to give God the best, to give sacrificially, to give him the top cut. And so for Israel, what this looked like, for some of them, it meant giving gold and bronze and silver. For some of them, it meant giving precious stone uh, and giving these valuable, very expensive materials. But, but for others in Israel, maybe they didn't have gold. Maybe they didn't have these fine linens. And so God... It says, bring what you can. Bring oils and, and a lumber. Go out and, and harvest acacia wood. Bring your animal skins. Give whatever you have that you can contribute. And I think there's something beautiful about this. Right? It's not just the wealthy who contribute, but it's everyone. Regardless of what or how much you can give. And we're not just talking financially now. We're talking about your time, your talents, your resources. See, the church at large, everyone is invited to contribute. Every time you go to church, every time you're with your missional community family, every time you gather together, you have an opportunity to give back to God. Financially, to support the work of ministry as the glory of God spreads across the earth, in your time and your talents to bless and to serve others. See, everyone who has something to give plays a significant role in the church. So God here, he's telling Moses to, to gather these things, take this offering, bring, bring stuff in from anyone and everyone, and, and you will not believe the response that God's people have. When Moses calls for these things, they, they respond Incredibly, If you want to jump to Exodus 36, and I'm going to kind of steal from, from a future sermon, but this is just too good to pass over. Um, Exodus 36, verse 3. And they, he's talking about the skilled craftsmen, they received from Moses all the contributions that the people of Israel had brought, had brought for doing the work of the, on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So get this. So Moses gave the command, and the word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution of the sanctuary so the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. Moses gets up on a Sunday morning. He says, guys, you are too generous. You have to stop giving. This is the dream of every pastor this is my hope. This is my hope that one day that we be so, become so enraptured with the love of Christ 
that we are so passionate about the mission moving forward, about what God is accomplishing here on earth and bringing the kingdom of God here and now, that I can come up and say, you guys have to stop giving. What a day that would be. Oh, this radical generosity, this is the mark. This is a mark, a vital sign of a heart that has encountered the glory of God. The people would not be given in such a way unless they had experienced God's glory. See, this is the motivation for giving. This is our motivation for giving. Giving is not a matter of paying dues, trying to get on God's good side and doing the right thing. Giving back to God is a matter of response to the glory and grace that we have experienced. See, the people, they saw the glory of God on the mountain. They saw the glorious grace of the covenant that God made with his people. They remembered how God had freed them from Egypt and brought them into this new place. Now, just think about this for a moment. We have to kind of back up a little bit. When God freed his people from Egypt, the last, the last plague hit, and, and the Egyptians were like, get out of here. Israel, you need to leave now. And so in the middle of the light, they pick up, they pack everything up quick, and they start running out the door. But, but before they go, Scripture tells us that they plundered the Egyptians. So anything valuable that the Egyptians had They're like, hey, if this is what it takes to get you out the door, I'm going to give you all my gold. I'm going to give you all my special oils. I'll give you anything that's of value just to get you to go. And so without raising a finger, without doing anything to accumulate this wealth, God gives his people all of these riches. So in this sense, nothing that the Israelites have has not come from any other place than God. Everything they own came directly from God. And now God is saying, give back to me. Just think about this. Every now and then, I, I, God has been so gracious to me and my family. There are some days where I stop and I think, what, what do I have that God hasn't given to me? Think about it. What do I have that God hasn't given to me? And you might say, well, you know what? I worked hard for this paycheck, and so I've got this nice house and this nice car, but who gave you, who gave you the energy to go to work? Who gave you the privilege or, or, or the, the opportunity to, to raise up in the way that you were raised up, to have a, maybe a stable family where you could sort of learn how, like socially, how be developed in a way that allows you to work well with others and to keep a job? Who gave you your time? Who gave you your physical capacity? It all came from God. Every little thing that you have in your life can be traced back to God and his gracious provision for you. See that, I think that this is a key for us in generous giving to think What do I have that God hasn't given to me? The answer is nothing. And so it's helpful for us as Christians to understand the why of giving, right? If you're going, if you're going to start a new workout routine, 
You're gonna start meeting with a personal trainer. They're gonna ask you for your why. What's your motivation? Why are you doing what you're doing, okay? And, and that motivation is supposed to be before you that you continue working, that even when the grind is hard, that when the work becomes, when you got those sore muscles, when you don't wanna roll out of bed the next morning, the why is before you. And so as Christians, when it comes to our giving, the why has to be before us. What is our motivation? See, the reason why we give back to God is because God has revealed his glory to us in his son. It's not in the thunder and the lightning and the, and the clouds that's up on the mountain. It's not in the shed blood of animals, though God did show his glory in that sense. But now the glorious grace of God has been made known through Jesus Christ. That the most valuable thing in the universe has been freely given for us to receive. That God bankrupted heaven so that we could experience the riches of Christ. See, that is our why. We give because the greatest need of of redemption from sin and peace with God has been made available through him. It's not accomplished by anything that we've done, but it's a free gift of grace to those who believe. And so in response to that free grace, we worship, and part of worship is giving. See, the only way that we become generous givers, right? The only way that we can be generous from the heart and cheerful from the heart is to first see how God has been so generous to us. But there's also another motivation for giving. And that's in verse eight. Take a look here. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. See, it's with these tithes, with these offerings, with these contributions that God is going to make a dwelling place that is fit for him to live among his people. This should actually be really shocking to us. What glorious God would trade the palace of heaven, the beauty, uh, uh, the mansion that a king deserves to come and live in a tent? God does this. Yahweh comes near to his people. He says, I'm gonna, I see you living in your tent and I'm gonna move in right next door. And because of this, it's not just a past tense reason that motivates people to give. It's, it's a future-oriented one as well, that God is coming near to us, that these ties, these contrib- contributions are, are, are here to create a place for God to dwell among his people. This is why they give, because they want to make a place for God. They want to see his glory spread. They want to be near to him. And this is why we also give as Christians today, so that the mission of God can move forward. To see God and the gospel penetrating into new neighborhoods in our communities. We want to see disciples made. We want to see the gospel proclaimed. We want to see the glory of God spread and be near So God gives Moses instructions on how to build this mobile home. Right? This is what chapter 25 through 30 is all about. They, they go through its very specific, it's very detailed instruction on how to make a place that's fit for God. And really what this kind of, when you read through this, it kind of reminds me of artist writers. Um, artist writers are sort of, 
when, when an artist or a musician or some sort of performer comes to town, usually they have a contract, but then next to the contract, they have this rider that lists out specific things that they require while they're on site. So it's, it's usually things like food and drink, maybe some sort of accommodations. Um, and, and it's usually, most of them are pretty normal, um, you know, like we like Pepsi, so bring us Pepsi or whatever. But every now and then there's some pretty bizarre ones. Um, I was kind of thinking through some of them. I remember reading once uh, Metallica asked for a lot of bacon. Is what They just wanted plates and plates of bacon. Um, one time Eminem requested a koi pond in his green room. But I think one, one, of, one of the requests, they kind of, I don't know, it's kind of cool. It's cool how it fits with this, but Madonna... Miss Diva herself, she, she requested that all the furniture of whatever venue she's in be removed, and then she would move her own personal f- furniture in. So she would ship her furniture from location to location to location, making a space that's fit for her. And we can kind of roll our eyes at this. We laugh at this stuff. It seems sort of over the top, too extravagant. But when God is laying out his pattern for this tabernacle, this place that he's going to live in, it's, he's not being a diva like the superstars. Because everything that's in this tabernacle is meant to signify God's infinite glory and value. He uses the finest materials made by the most skilled craftsmen. So God is indeed going to dwell in a tent, but his tent is unlike any other tent in the neighborhood. Because something special, something profound happens here. Someone important lives here. And so he gives Moses his project list. And we're just going to breeze through this real quick. And this this project list begins with the Ark of the Covenant in verse 10. It starts out as a small box of acacia wood that's overlaid with pure gold. And, And this is the most important piece. This is why God begins with this. Because this is the most important piece in the tabernacle. It's a place that, rep- it's a, the piece of furniture that represented where God's presence would actually dwell in its fullness. And in it was to be the testimony that God gave them. The, 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 the covenant, or excuse me, the commandments were to go inside of this um, ark. And this ark was so holy that it could not be touched, that, that there were poles that ran through it, that in order to move it, you had to hold it by the poles. If you were to touch it, you would actually die. In fact, there's a story later on in, in, um, in uh, Deuteronomy where someone actually touches it and they die. And on top of the ark was the lid called the mercy seat. It would be a, actually, we have a slide. I've got some stuff here to give you sort of visual representation. So the bottom here, that's the ark of the covenant. And then on top of that, with the wings, the cherubim, uh, with the gold overlay, that's the mercy seat. And the mercy seat is where atonement would happen. The high priest would come in, and he would sprinkle blood over the top of the mercy seat. It's the, actually the place where God would be in, in um, verse 21 and 22 of, of chapter 25, Uh, He says, and you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There, it's right there on, on, on the mercy seat, I will meet you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in the commandment for the people of Israel. And then there was the table for the bread, which uh, he lays out in verse 23. 
also made of acacia wood overlaid in gold. And what's significant about this table is not so much the table itself, but would go upon the table. On it would be food offerings and bread of the presence. And this bread of the presence was 12 loads of bread that represented the different, 12 different tri- tribes of Israel. And it represented the providential care that God had for Israel. But it also served as a reminder that God fellowshiped. He communed with his people, that they would break bread, that covenant meal that we saw back in Exodus 24, that God was near and fellowship with his people. Now, next on the project list is a golden lampstand, verse 31. And this light, if when we see how the tabernacle was built, the very thick walls It would have been very dark in there. And so this light stand, this lamp stand would have been right in the middle of the tabernacle, tabernacle, giving light. And this light represented the light that God shone into the world. But not just light, but but life. Because the the lamp stand itself was uh, ornate with branches and leaves and buds. And so it represented the the tree of life. That God is the life-giving Person, he is. He brings both light and life to his people, and all of this furniture would be inside the tabernacle. I have another slide here that kind of shows the layout, I believe. So you can see all of this furniture that we've talked so, about so far would be inside of the tabernacle, in the holy space. And then the the instructions for the tabernacle itself are laid out in chapter 26 with lots of detail. Again, beautifully crafted, intricate design using the best materials and linens. The tabernacle was divided into two spots. There was the holy place and the holy of holies. And the holy place would be the table for bread, the lampstand. There would be the altar of incense that we'll see later on. And then beyond a curtain would be a thick, thick curtain that said four inches thick was the Holy of Holies, the place where the Ark of the Covenant would be. So this tabernacle sort of framed up this stuff, and in front of the tabernacle, in front of the entrance of the tabernacle, was the bronze altar. In chapter 27, he lays that out, made of acacia wood, covered in bronze. And this is essentially where the sacrifices and and offerings would be given to God. And and really, all kinds of offerings. God lays out here um, all kinds of offerings that would take place. There's the burnt offering where there would be a general sacrifice for sin, where a whole animal would be slaughtered and burnt in offering to God. It happened twice a day. In the morning and at night, there would be a burnt offering that happened for the people every day of the week. There would be a grain offering where part of the harvest was given back to God, put on the altar and burned up to him. There was a fellowship offering where part of an animal would be burned and the other part of the animal would be consumed by the people, communicating the fellowship that God's people had with God himself. There were sin offerings, guilt offerings, where atonement for sin would happen. So this altar was a busy place. Lots of things happening And it's here at the altar where God carried out his wrath against the animal, where the animal itself died in the place of a sinner, a life for a life. In Leviticus 17, 11, God says, for the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. You see, the altar was busy. It was always burning, and it's always ready for the next sacrifice. It would have been a bloody place. It would have been much more like a slaughterhouse than a cathedral. But this offering, this sacrifice, this giving back to God 
was what was necessary, it was required to deal with the sins of the people. And in closing, the bronze altar and the tabernacle was the court of the tabernacle. In chapter 27, verse 9, it's area that's roughly the size of four tennis, clo- tennis courts. It'd be fenced in, made again with beautiful cloth and linens. It, and what it, what it represented was this limited access. Though God had come in or he, God was coming in to be among his people, there was still uh, an, an aspect of limitation that the people had, that there was only one way into the court through a single entrance. And the further you moved into the court, the more restricted the access was where only the priests could go into the holy place inside the tabernacle. Only the high priest could go into the holy of holies. And then we see here in the next chapter where the priests and what they wear is sort of laid out for us. And priests were men that God ordained to mediate between himself and the people by the offering of sacrifices. And these priests played a very important role in connecting the people of God to God. They functioned as a meteor. And because their job was so important, they had a special getup that signified that importance, right? Just like you can recognize military personnel or first responders by the gear they wear, you could recognize the priests and what they wore. Uh, chapter 28, verses one through five, lays this out. Take a look here. Then bring near to you Aaron, and Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadahab, Abihu, Eleazar, Ethamar, and you shall make them holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I've filled with the spirit of skill that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a a turban, a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. See, this is essentially the beginning of the Levitical priesthood where where God has designated for himself a people who would mediate between God and his people. And to signify this responsibility, they would wear holy garments. And each piece of the uniform carried a specific significance. But overall, verse two tells us that it was to designate them for glory and for beauty. It's something that's aesthetically pleasing that represented the glory and the beauty that they encountered in God himself. But wearing this gear, just putting on the robes, putting on the clothes, putting on the tunic, it wasn't enough to designate these, whole, these men for holy service to God, so they must be consecrated. They must be made holy or set apart for such a work. And so that's what chapter 29 is all about. It's a very detailed procedure about what it took to make these men qualified for the ministry that God put before them. And really this, this ceremony, this process of consecrating them would have taken seven days a week long of offering sin offerings, food offerings, a, a wave offering, peace offering, fellowship offering, offering after offering after offering, sacrifice after sacrifice. And with one of the sacrifices, they would take the blood from the sacrifice and they would mark the priest. They would mark his ear, they would mark his thumb, and they would mark his toe. And that blood that was upon them, the the fact that they were marked with blood, that they were under the blood, signified that they were set apart for the work of ministry. And there's still more 
to these blueprints, uh, these plans that God is making. Chapter 30 continues with more furniture and instructions for the tabernacle. There's the altar of incense in chapter 30, verse 1, that would constantly burn a specific fragrance, which God indicates in verse 22 of chapter 30. There's the census tax in verse 11 of chapter 30, which would be an ongoing contribution to maintain the tabernacle and to maintain its beauty. There would be, uh, which... In it, he used the language of ransom. You would give to the tabernacle as a significant, as a uh, as a mark of a ransom that you belonged to God, and that you owed your life to Him. It was an act of remembrance. There was the bronze basin, which would be right in front of the tabernacle itself, that would be filled with water. That every time the priest would go into the tabernacle or go to the altar, they would wash themselves. They wash their hands and wash their feet to signify that they had been made clean. Then there's the oils that were used. And everything that the oils touched, everything that that was touched by the oils was set apart for the service of God. And whatever they touched, the oils made holy. See, finally we come to the end of the list. And you're probably wondering, what's the point of all this? What's what's all this about? And I think just real quickly as as I come to a close here, I think there are a few valuable lessons that we consider from chapters 25 to 30. The first one, that God comes on his own terms. God lays out exactly how things ought to be. The Gospel Transformation Bible, the Study Bible says that as a holy God, he was not to be approached according to the best Israelite ideas or the whims of the culture, but according to his word. See, God has a certain way of doing things, and everything of the, about the tabernacle was directed by his words. And in doing so, God created a structure, or the people, through God's direction, created a structure that was more beautiful than anything that they could have come up with on their own. The second thing that we can see from this passage is that God values creativity, craftsmanship, and beauty. See, this isn't some sort of hodgepodge of materials here. Throw something together, a little shack for God to stay in. This is an intricate and beautiful place for God to be. See, there's glory in the details. Everything communicated something about how beautiful God was. And so he filled up men and women with the spirit of skill to make such beautiful things to represent his glory. And the third thing that we see is It's going to cost us. This tabernacle, this place for God to dwell, it's going to cost us something, but it's worth it. Right? God could have just miraculously made a tabernacle appear. God could have dropped in the prefabricated materials and left Ikea instructions for them to just throw together. But God didn't do that. God wanted his people to be involved. He wanted the contributions to come from his people. He wanted them to be the skilled laborers who put it together. But ultimately, all of this points, all of the tabernacle, all the furniture, anything in it, points us toward Jesus. This is crazy to me, that Jesus is the truer and better everything in the tabernacle. Jesus is the truer and better contribution and offering that God gave that God gave his only son the hymn of infinite worth and valuable so that God could make himself available to us. 
Jesus is the better ark, the exact place where the fullness, Colossians 2, 9 tells us, where the fullness of deity dwelt. Jesus is the mercy seat. He's the place of atonement where our sins are forgiven, where the wrath of God for our sins are turned away from us and upon himself. Jesus is the bread of presence, of the presence. Jesus is the bread of life that sustains his people. Jesus is the better life lampstand. He is the light of the world, the eternal life to all who believe. Jesus himself is the better tabernacle. John 1.14 says Jesus is the word that became flesh and dwelt. The Greek word is tabernacled, that tabernacled among us. See, God moved into the neighborhood, not, not this time in a tent, but he put on human flesh to be among us. And that human flesh, that tabernacle, that, that person, Jesus, would be put on the altar as the true sacrifice. That Jesus is the single entrance to the tabernacle, the one way into the presence of God. Jesus' body was the curtain that was torn into two to give us access to the Holy of Holies. Jesus is the better basin that washes us and sanctifies us day by day and reminding us that our sins are forever forgiven. Jesus is the incense, the the pleasing aroma to God. Jesus is the better oil that whatever he touches, he makes holy. Just as as Jesus was doing his ministry, he touches the woman and they're cleansed, they're healed. Jesus is the better high priest who perfectly mediates between the people and God. Jesus is the high priest who's clothed in glory and splendor of righteousness, beaming with all beauty and honor and glory. See, everything in this tabernacle points us to Jesus. This this tabernacle itself is essentially a prophecy that, that points us to our need for Christ, that if we want to have access to God, we need Jesus. See, the tabernacle was all about having access to God, and Christ shows up and gives us true access. This is incredible news for all of us. What the tabernacle was meant to accomplish is accomplished in Jesus. And because now we have full access to God through Christ, God is building for himself a new dwelling place. Ephesians 2.22, it says, when Paul's writing, he's talking to the church, he says, in him you, the church, are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. See, as Christ comes and we put our faith in him and trust in his atoning work and sacrifice, he fills us with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit moves in, that God's presence is with us, with all who believe. And the Spirit is at work in us individually, but corporately as a church as he's building us together. He's building a place where God will dwell for eternity. See, this is the home that God will be in forever. In the new heavens, new earth, a dwelling place, God says, I will be among my people. That means that we, as the dwelling place for God, will get to bask in the glory of Jesus. But just as God has prepared a place for himself in the tabernacle, God is preparing us for that place right now. He's preparing us as that dwelling place. So those three things that I list off, 
that it's happening on God's terms. God is preparing us. He's making us fit as a dwelling place for himself. According to the word, we are being reformed according to the image of his son. That God is using his word, the scriptures, using Jesus as a blueprint for us, that when he's creating this place, it's happening on God's terms. Two, it's gonna be incredibly beautiful. The work that God is doing in us, it might be painful, it might be hard work as he sanctifies us and renews our mind and our hearts, stirs up new affections in us, but in the end, it is going to be beautiful that we will be with Christ in glory. And third, it's gonna cost us to follow Christ and to work to advance the gospel will cost us our time, our resources, and our talents. Right? This means that we'll, we'll faithfully give to the church, we'll boldly live on mission, we'll serve vigorously, passionately worship. See, really what this means is that we have been brought into the priesthood of all believers, that all who are covered by the blood of Jesus are now ministering to the world. That, that the ministry isn't for pastors or people who, who are on staff of the church. The ministry is for all who are covered by the blood. It's going to cost us something, but it'll be worth it. Every dollar we give, every minute we spend, every ounce of energy exhausted in loving and serving and blessing and coming alongside of God's people and those who are trying to reach with the gospel, it will be worth it because one day we will be in glory with Christ. That this work that God is doing now will be completed. God will move in and we will be his dwelling place. Father, we pray that you would have your way with us. Our desire is to be near to you, and we see how you have come near to us through the person and work of Jesus that you put on flesh and dwelt among us, that you lived the life that we couldn't live and died the death that we deserve to die so that we could be made right with you, but not just made right with you on good standings, but you would, that you would draw near to us, that you would fill our hearts with a spirit, that you would use that spirit to bind us to one another and make for yourself a dwelling place. And so, Father, I pray that you would stir our hearts with affections for what you've done through your son, that our response to such grace would be that of generous giving of our time, our talent, and our treasure. I pray that you would just Give us a glimpse of your glory. That's what we want, Father. To see you for who you are, to be filled with affections for you, and to to see you as more valuable than anything else in this world. Father, will you make us into a people who are willing to submit to, to life on your terms? Would you make us a people who are devoted to your glory and to your beauty and to the process of sanctification that that has um, eternal impact on us? And would you, Father, make us willing to give, to make the sacrifice, to see glory draw near, to see our friends and our family, our neighbors, our coworkers who don't know you come to know you through our sacrifice and giving? God, you are 
powerful and mighty. You can take whatever small amount we have and multiply it. And so we ask that you would do so. Would you use us in profound ways for your glory and for our good? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.